Chapter 9, The Timing of the Kingdom One of the central issues in Hunt's critique of dominion or kingdom theology is the doctrine of the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? When was it or will it be established? Do we have to wait for the millennium or do we have to wait until after the millennium? Does the kingdom affect the earth? Will it exist on earth during a future millennium? In this chapter and in the following one, we will try to answer these questions. We will first look at the question of the timing of the kingdom. A future kingdom. Hunt believes that the kingdom is primarily a future reality. Though he does admit that the kingdom begins in the hearts of all who obey Christ as king, he emphasizes that the outward manifestation of this kingdom will not come in its fullness until God has destroyed this present universe and created a new one into which sin will never enter. 2 Peter 3, 10-13, Revelation 21, 1, etc. Thus, his emphasis is almost entirely on the future coming of the kingdom. Making temporary solutions to social problems and overriding concern of Christians blunts the gospel and obscures God's eternal solution. The focus is turned from heaven to this earth, from a new universe that only God can create, to a new world that we hope to fashion by our own efforts. It is just one more form of the selfism that plagues society and the church, another way of becoming little gods, of turning from heaven to ourselves, by assuming a responsibility to do what only he can do. The focus of the Christian's attention, Hunt says, is heaven and the new universe that God will create at the end of time. Hunt claims that the kingdom is not even established during the millennium. He refers to 1 Corinthians 15.50 to prove that the kingdom is not a kingdom of flesh and blood people. Paul declared that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 15.50. So the kingdom cannot be the millennium with its flesh and blood humans multiplying across the earth, much less the world of today taken over by Christians exercising dominion. Let us summarize the logic of Hunt's argument. Paul says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Hunt appears to believe that flesh and blood refers to man's physical nature. Thus, the kingdom cannot come until men and women no longer have flesh and blood. Because people in the millennium still have flesh and blood, the millennium cannot be the kingdom. There is only one place where men and women cease to have flesh and blood in heaven. Thus, Hunt concludes that heaven is the kingdom, period. It is difficult to figure out precisely what Hunt is trying to prove with this passage. After all, nearly every interpreter of 1 Corinthians 15 agrees that it refers to the final resurrection, the end of history, the time of Christ's second coming. The kingdom in this passage is the final kingdom of the consummated new heavens and new earth, as we will discuss below. We admit that the biblical writers sometimes refer to our eternal state in the new heavens and new earth as the kingdom, but that doesn't mean that kingdom can't refer to something else in other passages. Thus, this passage is only indirectly relevant to the question of whether or not the kingdom is present now. In other words, the kingdom could be both present and future. Just because this passage refers to a future kingdom does not mean that there can be no visible manifestation of the kingdom in the present. Even if Hunt is correct about the interpretation of this passage, he has yet to prove anything about the kingdom in history. Moreover, the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15 is that we will be raised with bodies. Would Hunt deny this? We don't think so. What he seems to be saying is that these bodies will not be flesh and blood bodies. This is correct but we must ask what flesh and blood means for Paul.
In trying to understand a phrase in scripture, it is often helpful to study what it is contrasted with. Today we use flesh and blood to denote a man's physical nature and contrast it to mind or soul. Hunt appears to assume that Paul uses flesh and blood in the same sense that we do. This is not necessarily the connotation that Paul gives to this expression. It is true that flesh and blood in the New Testament refers in some passages to man's physical nature, as when the author of Hebrew tells us that Jesus partook of flesh and blood, Hebrews 2.14. But it can also refer to human opponents in contrast to the demonic principalities and powers, Ephesians 6.11-12. The New Testament writers, moreover, also use flesh and blood to refer to man in contrast to God as a weak and dependent creature. Matthew 16:17, Galatians 1:15 through 17. In this sense, it has no suggestion of sin, but simply emphasizes that man is man and not God. He is weak and subject to decay. As writer Boss puts it, Flesh has for Paul the significance of what is human in its weakness, dependence on God, and perishableness in itself. Man, in his entirety, is flesh and blood. C.S. Lewis' characterization of heavenly beings as the solid people captured an important truth. In Lewis's dream, it is not heaven that is vaporous, but earth. The earth-bound ghost could not even walk on the grass of heaven because it was too solid. Lewis was not making a theologically precise statement, but his description is a valid reminder that we will be resurrected with bodies. In order to understand what Paul meant by flesh and blood in 1 Corinthians 15.50 specifically, we should note that verse 50 is a summary statement of the previous discussion about different kinds of bodies. Thus, flesh and blood is equivalent to the natural body that Paul describes in verses 42-46. through What characterizes this natural body, this flesh and blood existence? Corruption, verse 42. Dishonor, verse 43. Weakness, verse 43. These characteristics define what Paul means by flesh and blood. Flesh and blood does not refer exclusively to man's physical nature. All of these things, corruption, dishonor, weakness, could just as easily describe man's soul or mind. Thus, Paul doesn't mean that men cannot inherit the kingdom of God as long as they have bones and sinews and muscles. He means that they cannot inherit the kingdom in the weakness and corruption of the fleshly existence. This interpretation is strengthened by the fact that the natural body is contrasted throughout this passage with the spiritual body, verses 43-46. For Paul, spiritual almost invariably refers to the Holy Spirit. Certainly it does in this passage. Thus, a natural or flesh and blood existence is the living death of men apart from the Holy Spirit. When Paul says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, he is simply applying Jesus' statement in John 3, 5-6 to the final kingdom. Jesus said, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. These words appear to be in the background of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 15:50. It is also possible that Paul uses flesh and blood to refer to natural generation. Thus, he might be saying that men do not inherit the kingdom of God because they are born into the right family. People do not inherit the kingdom because they are born as Jews or because their parents are Christians. They inherit the kingdom only by spiritual generation. John uses flesh and blood in this sense in John 1, 12-13. 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Thus, Paul does not mean that believers will enter the kingdom as disembodied souls. They will enter the final kingdom with resurrected spiritual bodies. Jesus ate with his disciples after his resurrection, Luke 24, 40-43. His disciples were able to touch and see him. He even called attention to his flesh and bones, Luke 24, 39. Yet he was raised with a spiritual body, 1 Corinthians 15, 45-46. A spiritual body is not a vapor or a mist. It is a body controlled by the Holy Spirit. Those who enter the final kingdom will have bodies, but they will not be weak, corruptible, and depraved, fleshly bodies. Men must be transformed to inherit the kingdom. They must be raised with spiritual bodies. What then does this passage actually teach about the timing of the kingdom? It does not teach that there is no kingdom in history. It teaches that men must be transformed to inherit the kingdom of God. This is true in the present as well as in the future. If we are to be subjects of the kingdom of God now, we must be spiritual, not fleshly. In principle, we are already spiritual. We have been baptized into Christ, and therefore we are freed from sin. Romans 6, 1-7 In Romans 7, 5, Paul says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Note that Paul tells Christians that they were in the flesh. In a sense, then, Christians are already spiritual. Though we are not perfectly spiritual, we have already put off flesh and blood and now live in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the latter. Romans 7.6 Thus, what Paul says about the final kingdom in 1 Corinthians 15.50 is already true of Christians today. And if Christians have already put off the flesh, then the kingdom has already come. When Christ returns, we shall be spiritual in the fullest sense, and the kingdom will come in fullness. But it is also true that we have already inherited the kingdom because we are already spiritual. Hunt uses a second argument to prove that the kingdom is not established in the millennium. We are told many times in the Bible that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Of the coming Messiah, Isaiah prophesied that there would be no end both to his kingdom and to the peace it established, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. On this count, also the kingdom cannot be the millennium, for that wonderful time of peace on earth as Christ reigns from Jerusalem not only ends, but with a great war, Revelation 20, 7-9. Because the kingdom is eternal, it cannot be established during the limited period of the millennium. This argument again says nothing about whether the kingdom has already been established. It is clear from scripture that the kingdom is eternal, but this fact does not tell us when the kingdom was or will be established. It merely tells us that once the kingdom is established, it will never end. We will argue in this chapter that the kingdom is indeed everlasting, but that it has already begun with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Hunt and Mainstream Dispensationalism Hunt's position is not consistent with the traditional dispensationalist view to which he generally adheres. According to Charles Ryrie, a leading dispensationalist theologian, dispensationalism teaches that Christ offered the Davidic kingdom to Israel. Because Israel rejected the Davidic kingdom, its establishment was postponed. In the millennium, however, Christ will establish this Davidic kingdom. In other words, Ryrie is saying that Christ will establish the kingdom during the millennium. Another leading dispensationalist theologian, John 
Wildbrood, wrote a book in 1959 called The Millennial Kingdom. Lewis Sperry Chaffer, whose massive systematic theology has been a dispensationalist standard, claimed that the kingdom was postponed when the first century Jews rejected the Messiah. It will, however, be realized when Christ returns and offers the kingdom again to the Jews. Herman Hoyt of Grace Theological Seminary describes in glowing terms the richness and greatness of the kingdom during the millennium. Postmillennial writer Lorraine Botner says that dispensationalism teaches that the rejected kingdom is held in abeyance until the return of Christ, at which time it is to be established by overwhelming power. All millennialists Anthony Hokema writes that in the dispensational view, Christ's second coming establishes his millennial reign, during which Christ rules over a kingdom. Thus, both dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists agree that the teaching of mainstream dispensationalism is that Christ establishes his kingdom in the millennium. Hunt, as far as we can tell, disagrees. It is important to stress this point. If our interpretation of Hunt's position is correct, he has abandoned the traditional dispensational system at this point. He has denied the kingdom of God will ever be manifested on earth, even in the millennium. Hunt admits that during the millennium, the whole earth will resemble the Garden of Eden before the fall. But the garden was where man first sinned. Similarly, the millennium will end in disaster. Converging from all over the world, to war against Christ and the saints at Jerusalem, these rebels will finally have to be banished from God's presence forever. Revelation 27 through 10. The millennial reign of Christ upon earth, rather than being the kingdom of God, will in fact be the final proof of the incorrigible nature of the human heart. If this is the case, then all talk of the kingdom of God on earth is a delusion, a delusion of the Antichrist. This anti-historical bias was always implicit in dispensationalism, but Hunt has made it explicit. There is no hope for Christians in history, not even during the millennium. Christians will never exercise dominion, not even during Christ's personal reign from Jerusalem. The reason, Hunt says, is that it is impossible for God to set up an earthly kingdom. Apparently, Satan is too powerful. In fact, dominion taking dominion and setting up the kingdom of Christ is an impossibility even for God. The millennial reign of Christ, far from being the kingdom, is actually the final proof of the incorrigible nature of the human heart, because Christ himself can't do what these people say they are going to do. We would like to believe that Hunt did not think through the implications of this statement very carefully. As it stands, Hunt is simply denying the sovereignty of God. There seems to be no other way to interpret his statement. He does not say that God does not want to establish his kingdom. He says that God can't establish his kingdom. This statement reveals the rock bottom of Hunt's objection to dominion. The issue, it turns out, is not eschatology, but Hunt's doctrine of God. Hunt, perhaps unintentionally, says that God is unable to do what he wills to do. This, we think, is hardly an accurate description of the Almighty God of Scripture, the God who does as he pleases in heaven and on earth, Daniel 4:34-35. Such statements do not attribute to our God glory and strength as Scripture exhorts us to do. The Last Days the main issue, of course, is not whether Hunt is an orthodox dispensationalist. The issue is whether the New Testament supports the belief that the kingdom is exclusively a future reality. We believe it does not. 
One source of confusion in this whole area is the biblical use of the terms last days and latter days. Hunt and many other dispensationalists believe that this refers to the last days of history, that is, the very end of the world. Very often, however, this is obviously not the way the Bible uses this phrase. At Pentecost, Peter defended the apostles from charges of drunken carousing by quoting from Joel 2, 28-32. And it shall be in the last days that I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind, Acts 2, 17. When was this last days prophecy fulfilled? Peter said that the events of Pentecost fulfilled Joel's prophecy, Acts 2, 16. Similar language is used in the first verses of Hebrews 1. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, Hebrews 1, 2. Again, we might ask when God spoke to us in his Son. Clearly, the writer of Hebrews is referring to the first advent of Christ. Later, the author of Hebrews said that the end of the ages had come upon his readers, Hebrews 9, 26. Peter says that the Lamb was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, 1 Peter 2.20. When did the Lamb appear for us? Again, it is obvious that Peter is referring to the first coming of Christ. Thus, when the biblical writers talk about the last days, we should not think immediately of the end of the world. Rather, we should think of the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Christ as the beginning of the last days. When Paul warned Timothy about the deception and heresy of latter times, he was not prophesying of the late 20th century. 1 Timothy 4, 1, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. Paul's warning to Timothy were urgent because the things that he prophesied were already happening. After all, he told Timothy to avoid such men as these, 2 Timothy 3.6. If Paul had been prophesying of the distant future, this warning would have been nonsensical to Timothy. There was no reason for Paul to warn Timothy to avoid people who wouldn't be born for 20 centuries. Paul warned Timothy about false teachers because Timothy was going to confront them in his ministry. These prophecies, in short, were fulfilled in the first century. It may seem odd that scripture refers to this period as the last days. In fact, it seems odd to us only because we assume that these phrases refer to the end of the world. If we think about things biblically and try to understand these passages as first century Jews would have understood them, the coming of Christ was the end of the world. With the death and resurrection of Christ, everything changed. In Christ, the old things pass away and all things are made new, 2 Corinthians 5.17. In order to understand this, we must realize that the Bible views the nation of Israel as a center of world history prior to the coming of Christ. When Israel was rejected as the chosen race, the old world came to an end. Christ came to found a new covenant, a new priesthood, a new Israel, a new chosen people. Thus, when the New Testament writers say that the world is coming to an end, or that the last days have come, we should understand that the world as it centered on Israel was ending. In a very real sense, the world came to an end with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, Pentecost, and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. These events took place in the last days of the world order. The Establishment of the Kingdom To keep a balanced perspective on the timing of the kingdom, we must see it in three different time frames. First, it is definitively established in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Second, it increases and advances progressively from that time to the end of the world. Finally, it is established fully at Christ's second coming. Definitive 
let us first examine the definitive aspect of the kingdom. Even a superficial reading of the gospel shows that the kingdom of God is the major theme of the ministries of both John the Baptist and Jesus. In fact, this is what the gospels are all about. The king is coming to establish his kingdom. John the Baptist exhorted the people of Judea to repent because the kingdom of heaven is near, Matthew 3, 2. From his very first sermon, Jesus preached a similar message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, Matthew 4, 17. When Jesus sent out the 72 disciples, he told them to preach that the kingdom of God is near, Luke 10, 9. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all declare that the content of Jesus' entire teaching ministry can be summed up as the good news of the kingdom, Matthew 4:23, Mark 1:14 through 15, Luke 4:16 through 30, 4:43, These passages and many others besides prove the establishment of the kingdom was imminent. It was near, already in the time of Jesus. There was, however, a very significant difference between the preaching of John and the preaching of Jesus. They often use the same words, but we find in Mark 1.15 that Jesus not only proclaims the kingdom is near, but announces that the time is fulfilled. Thus, while John prophesied that it was almost time for the Lord to visit his people, Jesus asserted that this visitation was in actual progress, that God was already visiting his people. Moreover, in Luke 17:21, Jesus tells the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is within you. The Greek word for within can also mean in the midst of. Whatever it means here, however, one thing is clear. Jesus was announcing that God's kingdom was present not exclusively future. In short, a great change had begun to occur by virtue of Jesus' presence on earth. Jesus described this change in other terms as well. When the Pharisees complained that his disciples did not fast, he asked, Can the children of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Luke 5.33 The mere fact that Jesus was among them filled the disciples with joy, a sign of the kingdom. Compare Romans 14.17 Writer Bose notes that this person is not only the announcer, but he himself is the center and the cause of the joy, the bliss, which has started with his coming. Jesus also was establishing the kingdom by his works of healing. The clearest passage in this regard are Luke 4.21 and Matthew 11.2-6. And in each case, Jesus applied the prophecy to his works of healing and his teaching. In other words, Jesus claimed to be fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. When the Pharisees charged Jesus with casting out demons by the power of the devil, he denied it and added, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The verb used for come upon implies that something is present, not merely close by. Jesus was saying that the casting out of demons demonstrated that the kingdom of God had arrived. Thus Jesus was establishing his rule by defeating the enemy of the kingdom, Satan. He gained the definitive victory over Satan supremely in his death on the cross and in his resurrection. Colossians 2.15, 1 Corinthians 15. But even during his earthly ministry, he was winning early skirmishes. The casting out of demons, a sign of the presence of the kingdom, was also a victory over Satan. As one scholar has put it, in each act of exorcism, Jesus saw a defeat of Satan. Or as Gerhardus Voss states, the underlying principle is that in the world of spirits there is no neutral territory where the demons depart, the divine spirit enters. 
Jesus even gave his disciples the power to cast out demons. When they returned from their mission, Jesus told them that he had seen Satan fall as lightning from heaven, Luke 10, 18. In short, as George Eldon Ladd summarizes, Jesus did not promise his hearers a better future or assure that they would soon enter the kingdom. Rather, he boldly announced that the kingdom of God had come to them. John Bright states, It lies at the very heart of the gospel message to affirm that the kingdom of God has in a real sense become a present fact, here and now. The definitive establishment of the kingdom takes place in several stages. Even in the initial establishment of the kingdom, a principle of progress is operating. The kingdom was dawning already when Christ was born. Throughout his life, he was routing enemy forces and extending his rule. His death was a triumph over Satan, and thus marked a further development in the founding of his kingdom. The Bible also says that Christ's kingdom is established by his resurrection. This was part of Peter's Pentecost message, Acts 2, 32-36. Paul implies the same in 1 Corinthians 15, 23-25, NIV. But each in his own turn, Christ, the firstfruits then, when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. We could say a great deal about this passage, but we want to focus on several things. First, note that the passage is found within a chapter devoted to the reality of Christ's resurrection. Second, note that this passage speaks about Christ's reign. Finally, and this is the important point, note the time indicators that define the reign of Christ. The end will come after Christ has destroyed his enemies. He will reign until he has brought all things under his feet. In other words, the kingdom does not begin when Christ returns. Christ began reigning from the time of his resurrection. The kingdom culminates in his second coming. Finally, Christ's ascension is described in Scripture as an enthronement, Ephesians 1, 20-23, Philippians 2, 9-10. In Ephesians 1, 21, Paul states that Christ has been placed far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. This happened after God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1, 20. As A. A. Hodge said, In the strictest sense, we must date the actual and formal assumption of Christ's kingly office in the full and visible exercise thereof from the moment of his ascension into heaven from this earth and his session at the right hand of the Father. The destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was also a central event in the establishment of the kingdom of Christ. In keeping with the language of the Old Testament prophets, Jesus uses end-of-the-world language to describe the destruction of the temple, Matthew 24, Luke 21. Several details of these texts make it clear that he was referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and not to the end of the world. He refers specifically to those who will be in Judea, Matthew 24:16, and warns that no one who is on the roof of his house should go into his house to retrieve his belongings, Matthew 24:17. The reference to people on the roof shows that Jesus has first century Palestine in mind. At that time, it was a common practice to use the flat roof of the house for gatherings. Moreover, Jesus refers to the Sabbath, Matthew 24:20 an institution that no longer exists. In Luke, he refers explicitly to armies surrounding Jerusalem, Luke 21, 20, 24. 
The real key to the interpretation of this passage, however, is the time reference. Jesus indicates the time of the fulfillment of his prophecy when he says, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Matthew 24, 34, Luke 21, 32. In other words, these events would happen during the lifetime of the disciples. Some claim that the Greek word for generation, genea, means race. Thus, they argue Jesus was not predicting that these things would happen within the disciples' lifetime. Rather, he was saying that Israel as a nation would be preserved until these events are fulfilled. To determine what Genea means, we need to examine the way Matthew uses the word in other places. Compare Matthew 1.17, Such an examination shows that there is no basis for understanding Genea as race. The fact that Jesus calls it this generation makes it even more unlikely that Genea means race. Thus, if we are to take Jesus at his word, we must conclude that he was talking about a local judgment on the first century Jews. For our purposes, the important thing to note is that this event was a demonstration of the power of the exalted king. The Son of Man came to Jerusalem with great power and great joy, Matthew 24:30. When the signs of the destruction of Jerusalem appeared, the disciples were to understand that the kingdom of God is near, Luke 21:31. The judgment of Jerusalem is the final stage of the definitive establishment of his kingdom. Thus, the kingdom of God is definitively established in several stages, in Christ's earthly life and ministry, in his death and resurrection, his ascension, and the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. What all this means is very simple, but revolutionary for our understanding of the kingdom and of eschatology. It means that the most important events in the establishment of the kingdom have already taken place. The most important eschatological end-time events were the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. As Roderick Campbell has written, Nothing more revolutionary will ever happen than the transformation which commenced with the Advent and the other events which are recorded in the historical books of the New Testament. Premillennial dispensationalists are not the only ones who deny that the kingdom was established by Christ at his first advent. Many charismatic Dominion theologians are also guilty of undercutting the present reign of Christ. Some of these are looking for a dramatic apocalyptic event in the next few years. Bruce Larson says, I had and have now a growing belief that we are in the beginnings of an exciting new age, a new age which I believe is already imminent and will change life for all people upon this globe. Seattle pastor Casey Treat says, In three years, we're going to run this planet in the name of Jesus. If we're not running it, we'll be on the way to running it. These quotations show that a change in eschatology is indeed taking place, but so far the change is from pessimistic apocalypticism to optimistic apocalypticism. The psychology of these two positions is exactly the same. Both positions are based on a short-term mentality. It is precisely this kind of perspective that led to the revolutionary debacles in Munster and Mulhausen during the 16th century. We must therefore stress again that the decisive events of the end times were past, 2,000 years past. The kingdom does not grow by revolution, but by grace, obedience, and faith. There may be dramatic changes in the coming years, but they will not usher in the kingdom. The kingdom has been ushered in. It is here. It has been here since Christ's day. Progressive. What we are now engaged in is the long-term extension of the kingdom. 
And by long-term, we mean long-term, century after century of building, block by block. Dominion does not come overnight. There is no instant dominion. Dominion comes over a period of decades and centuries through self-sacrificing service and obedience. This progressive aspect of the kingdom is seen most clearly in Jesus' parables. In fact, one of the dominant notes of many parables is this progress of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that starts very small and grows into a huge tree, providing a resting place for the birds of the air, Matthew 13:31-32. The kingdom is also like leaven placed in a loaf that eventually spreads throughout the loaf, Matthew 13:33. The parable of the wheat and tares also implies a progressive development of the kingdom. This is again a central feature of the parable. The owner of the field knows there are weeds in his wheat field, but he delays the harvest. He lets the wheat and the weeds grow and mature before he sends his laborers to harvest them. Matthew 13:24 through 30:36 through 43. What then did Jesus say would happen to the kingdom after its establishment? The parable cited above teach that the kingdom would grow. It began as a seed in a field, or as leaven in a loaf. Gradually, almost imperceptibly, it has grown into a tree and has leavened the whole lump. This same principle of permeation and growth and extension is found in some of the Old Testament prophecies of the kingdom. Isaiah says that a child would be born a king, an obvious reference to the first advent of Christ. Once his kingdom is set up, there will be no end to the increase of his government and peace, 9, 2-7. It's not just that the kingdom is everlasting, its increase is everlasting. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in which the God of heaven sets up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, verses 44 through 45. The kingdom is compared to a rock cut without hands that becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth, verses 31 through 34. In the New Testament, in addition to the parables of Christ, Paul says that the end will come after he has put all his enemies under his feet, 1 Corinthians 15.24, and that the last enemy that will be abolished is death, 1 Corinthians 15.26. In other words, Jesus will return to a world in which nearly all his enemies have been conquered. The only enemy that will remain is death. This is the distinctive teaching that characterizes our view of the future. We believe that Christ's rule is a victorious and triumphant reign that will someday, in the present age, through his church, extend from sea to sea and from the mountains to the ends of the earth. Final. The New Testament also teaches that we look for a future manifestation of the kingdom. Matthew 25, 1 Corinthians 15, 23-24, Revelation 21, etc. In this sense, we agree with Hunt that the kingdom refers to heaven and the fullness of the new heavens and new earth. And we agree that our true and permanent home is in the heavenly mansion that Jesus is preparing for us, and that our life there is from one perspective, a pilgrimage to that blessed land of rest. We look forward to heaven with joy and expectation, knowing that we shall be forever with our Savior and King in his perfect kingdom. The hope of heaven helps us endure the trials of the present life. We look forward to the day when all believers from all lands will gather to worship the land that was slain from the beginning of the world, and when we will live in perfect peace and love, free from the last remnants of sin. Any Christian who does not eagerly await his heavenly reward is grievously confused. Any Christian whose sole hope is an earthly reward has not understood Christianity. 
but this does not relieve us of responsibility on earth. On the last day, we will be judged according to our service on earth, Matthew 25. Thus, we cannot sit on our hands and wait for Jesus to come. We must be seeking and, by his grace, extending Christ's kingdom throughout our lives. Moreover, we do not look for a new kingdom. The heavenly kingdom is not something that God will establish for the first time at the end of history. It's simply the full and final and glorious manifestation of the kingdom that was first established 2,000 years ago. Since the coming of Christ, therefore, we can say that the kingdom is both already present in principle and not yet fully consummated. Conclusion The Bible teaches that the kingdom of Christ is a present reality. It was established by Christ through the work he performed in his first advent. It is advancing by his power as he works in his people by his spirit. His church will reach a glorious climax, becoming the chief mountain among the mountains of the earth. Then Christ shall return in glory to judge all men and to bring in the fullness of the new heavens and the new earth.